Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends. This is John O'Leary. So happy to have you here joining us in the Live Inspired Movement. Uh, Two weeks ago, my wife and I had a meeting with our financial advisor, one of those uh, sit-down meetings where we hear about what the markets are doing and what the world is doing and how we, my wife and I, at least financially, are doing. And during the course of the conversation, we find ourselves typically talking less about money and a whole lot more about life. And so about halfway through this conversation, I look over at Tim and I say, man, why is everybody so negative about the market, so negative about the world, so negative about our country? And he pushed back from the desk and he kind of went over to his bookshelf and he handed me a book. The book, it's titled, It's Better Than It Looks, and then the subtitle, Reasons for Optimism in an Age of Fear. It's written by a guy that I'd heard of before named Greg Easterbrook. So my homework leaving that meeting was to read this book. I thought it would take me the better part of eight months because it's more than 300 pages. It took me about three days to get through this book. And uh, Greg was speaking directly to me. And I think there's a message in this book that will speak directly to you. Our guest is the author of 12 books, including the New York Times bestselling book, The Progress Paradox. That's another great one. He's been a staff writer, national correspondent, and contributing editor at The Atlantic for more than 40 years. He's written for The New Yorker, Science, Wired, Harvard Business Review, The Washington Monthly, The New York Times, The Washington Post, many, many, many others. In 2017, he was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Greg is an accomplished guy, and he's an optimist. And in the marketplace of pessimism and fear-based thinking and preaching, my gosh, what better time to bring on a new voice with a whole lot of fact backing up his opinions than my new friend and yours, Greg Easterbrook. So my friends, my invitation to you right now is to buckle up, open up your heads and your hearts, take notes, because we get to bring on to our show my newest friend and now yours, Greg Easterbrook. Greg, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. I'm glad to be here, John. Man, it it really is an honor. I've been a fan of your work for a while, but I had not read this book until my friend Tim Halls handed it to me. So I'm going to begin with you kind of doing a little commercial. Why did you write the book? Well, my goal to the book was to try to reestablish intellectual credibility for optimism. The American tradition going back into the past is very optimistic. And the tradition of reformers is also optimistic. If you think about the the political progressive era of roughly a century ago, the progressives were all optimists. They thought America could be made better, richer, stronger, more fair, more free. And this wouldn't just happen to the wealthy, this could happen to practically everybody. It was a wonderful vision, and it led in part to the country that we live in today. If you live in the United States, you're living in the the most prosperous, most strong, most free, and for all our problems, of course we have many problems, but you're living in the most fair country that has ever existed. And that is, in no small part, the result of intellectual optimism. And yet with today, 
you go. I, I speak often on college campuses, mm-hmm. in, the, in the academy, among the pundits, the editorial boards of the New York Times and Washington Post. It's a it, it's a competition to see who can be the most negative about America. So my purpose in writing this book is to try to to to, to put down a factual groundwork for how the United States has improved. The country is in the best condition that it's ever been in right now. And, of course, we have many problems and many more to come. And then the second thing I do in the book is I look at past reforms that have worked. I try to draw some lessons from them. And then I apply those reforms to the challenges of the present, Mm -hmm. which are many. Climate change, inequality, immigration, we've got a lot of problems ahead of us to fix. But the reason that we should be... Optimists is that optimists believe that problems can be fixed. Pessimists believe that we're all going to hell in a handbasket. Optimists think that if we roll up our sleeves, whatever's wrong, and there's a lot that's wrong, can be fixed. And we need optimism to restore its importance in American public life. Well, I think uh, the conversation that you'll be sharing with us today is right on, and the timing is perfect. I want to back up a little bit, even before the 2016 election, way back, man, to Buffalo, New York, 1953. There's a little boy who was born just outside of Niagara Falls. Uh, do you know who it might have been? I do. That yeah, I believe you're thinking of me, John. I am. So t- take us back, because I, th- I think some of who we are today is the result of who we were when we were little and how we were raised and what we were taught and who inspired and encouraged us. So what what was life like for you growing up in Buffalo, New York? Well, Buffalo at that time and still today is mainly a middle-class town. It was mainly working class when I was young. It's starting to become a little professionalized and gentrified, but it's behind the rest of the country in, in that regard. So when I was growing up, it was mainly a working class environment. At that time, Buffalo was a, was a major steel town, major railroad town. Uh, at that time, General Mills's uh, cereal production facility was still running in Buffalo. So you, you, could, you, could, you could actually smell Cheerios all mm. through the city. And, and at that time, one of the many things that has changed in my lifetime is the very dramatic reduction in pollution in the United States. At that time, there was so much pollution from the steel mills that it, you got up in the morning, there was, there was a sulfur haze on everything. If you could write your name in your father's car on the hood in the sulfur haze, and even if he washed the car, the next day there would be another sulfur haze on the car. Because that's, that's all gone now. One of, the, one of them, in It's Better Than It Looks, I go through the data, on not on everything, but practically everything has gotten better in the United States in my lifetime. And John, you and I can go through it in detail if you want, but the fast version of it is pollution is way down, discrimination is down. Think of 1953. Women couldn't work outside the home. There was tremendous discrimination against African Americans. There was le- there was le- legal discrimination against gays. In many states, it was illegal to be gay, let alone to, for gays to marry. So discrimination is down. Pollution is down. Disease rates are down. Almost all disease rates, including rates of heart disease and cancer, the two that we worry about the most, have declined dramatically during my lifetime. Longevity is way up. Education levels are way up. Living standards are way up. Middle, Despite what you hear in the press, middle-class income has steadily increased, including in the last 20 years. Meanwhile, our country is the strongest country militarily in the history of the world. We're stronger than the militaries of all other countries combined. And human freedom 
has risen during my lifetime. I think it can rise even more. But all these things are positive. And of course, there's work still to be done. But you hear people say, oh, back in the good old days. It was right. so much better back in the good old days. I, I wish I could go back to the good old days. I always say, really, when? Tell me exactly when and where you want to go back to. So I'm curious, and, when, when you say that, because... I've been following you for a while, and and uh, one of the things that amazes me most is you share this incredibly factual message with your audiences. Data points everywhere. You drop the mic, you turn it over for Q and A, and always the questions are negative. They, they very even seldom say thank you, Greg. It almost always begins with yeah, but yeah, but. Uh, why are we so negative and why do we long for the, in quote, good old days, whether it's 1953 or 83 or 1863? Well, it is human nature to romanticize the past. I think many people feel this about many things. Uh, I have many friends who are in the major media and they always say, oh, back in the good old days, the media landscape was so much better. And I say, really? Tell me what year this good old days was. Tell me what year the typical American news consumer was better off than in 2018. Because I think the news concern, yeah, you know, salaries at some newspapers may be down, but news consumers have never been better off than they are right today. And that, that same logic applies to practi- practically everything. Living standards, what year in the past would you rather be an average person? Healthcare, what year specifically? What year in the past do you think healthcare was better for average people than it is today? Decline of discrimination, what year in the past would you rather be a black homosexual than you would be, like to live in that lifestyle today? You, you, you just can't name any past years when practically anything except for maybe popular music was better th- th- than it is today. <laughs> People want to believe this. We want to believe things that are negative. And I'll tell you, partly this is because, <clears throat> partly it's because uh, uh, I think of a flaw of the Western character, which, which we can discuss that I call collapse anxiety. But it's also, it's also our modern politics are dominated by anecdotes. And I'll give you an example. Uh, whenever I speak to audiences, I go through all the data of declining disease, rising living standards, etc. And, 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 of course, in the last four years, the last two of Obama and the first two of Trump, the, the employment situation is also the best that it's ever been in the United States. So somebody will always raise their hand and say, well, you claim that disease has vanished. And, of course, I don't claim that. Yes. But I know someone who has cancer. It's the personal anecdote mm-hmm. that, that swamps very large amounts of data, because personal anecdotes, we'd much rather hear the story of an individual than than attend a Brookings Institution forum where lots of experts are debating statistics. And somebody will always raise a hand and say, well, you say unemployment is low, but I have a friend who's unemployed and he swears there's no jobs. When people like me say that things have never been better, what a lot of Americans hear is, this guy's claiming that everything is perfect. And of course, I'm not claiming that everything is perfect. There's all kinds of problems in the world. There's all kind, there are many people who have severe financial problems, severe health problems. You sure know that better than anybody else does, John. There are many people who are lonely. Their lives aren't working well. There will always be challenges like this in society. My big point is that in the main, as a nation, we're the best off we've ever been. And the same, the same, Analysis not only applies to almost all of the nations of Western Europe, 
It applies to most of the nations of Asia as well, and even some of the nations of South America and Africa. The larger world has never been better off than it is today. And yet we fixate on anecdotes of individuals with problems, real and troubling, but not as important as the larger trends. And the anecdotes of individuals with problems, of course, work out very well on social media. That larger trends don't work well on social media. Well, so, <clears throat> since you're diving right in, I'm ready to uh, to swim in this pool with you. In the book, you had an, a, a different title for it originally. Will you tell my listeners what the original title was and where it came from? This book, John, actually went through. It's on the third title. Oh, first, we get to hear extra credit today. Tell us what the three the three titles have been. I like the first title best. The first title is was "Why the World Refuses to End," and. <laughs> Because you listen to all this doomsday propaganda, including you probably saw a couple of days ago the New York Times had an op-ed piece saying it would be good if humanity became extinct because then there wouldn't be such species pressure on frogs or I forget what the logic was, but but the intellectual world is totally committed to the idea that the world is about to end, and yet the world refuses to end. So the, the original title was Why the World Refuses to End, and that's now the title of the first section of this book. My publisher said, I don't know, I don't really like that one. Try to come up with something that has a better literary ring to it, since I aspire to be a literary writer. So then I came up with The Arrow of History. Yes. Uh, and that's the title of the second section of this book, and it plays off a, a statement by FDR, who was one of my heroes. Um, and... FDR's statement, you should, all of your listeners should remember this. He said this in 1945, a couple of weeks before his death. The great fact to remember is that the trend of civilization is forever upward. Uh, that is a great fact to remember. Um, and I changed it to, from trend to arrow because I, I think too many book titles have the word trend in them. So I thought the arrow of history was a nice, classy, literary-sounding thing. But then my publisher finally said, it's better than it looks, sounds more current and more exciting. So we went with that. You're, yeah, your publisher's got to know something, right? Uh, on, on occasion. And uh, as I as I sit in the shoes and in the seat right now, some of our listeners, I'm sure some folks are thinking, man, how can these guys be talking like this? That there's starvation at unmatched levels going on in every single corner of the world. When you receive questions like that, uh, what's your response to it, Greg? Well, actually, in that particular point, let's let's address that because people's conception of where global poverty and global malnutrition are very, very different from the numbers. Right now, and I'll use entirely United Nations statistics because the United Nations is on the left wing of this debate, but statistically, they're pretty reliable. The United Nations says that right now, today, global malnutrition is at the lowest level in human history. 25 years ago, 40% of the human family was malnourished. Now it's down to about 10, maybe 11%, depending on how you do the definition, even though there are 2 billion more people alive in the world than there were 25 years ago. Global malnutrition is falling really fast. Now it has to keep falling. We won't be happy until there's no global malnutrition. Mm -hmm. But the percentage of it is way, way down. Equally important, global extreme poverty, again, United Nations definition, has declined also to the lowest level in human history. We're now below 10% of the human family living in destitution. Now, 10% of 
7 billion people is still a gigantic number. It's twice the population of the United States. So destitution in the world, mainly in Africa, but in some parts of Asia as well, is still a large problem. But 25 years ago, 40% of the human family lived in destitution. The number just almost in sync with the malnutrition number has gone way down at the same time that the human family has gotten bigger. And you know what surveys show? Surveys, poll data shows that Western Europeans and Americans simply don't believe these numbers. Right. If you poll, if you poll Americans and say, is global poverty getting better or worse? Overwhelmingly, they say, oh, it's much worse than it used to be. The actual answer is that it's going down really fast. And actually, I think the United States gets some of the credit for this. We could talk about that if you want. But people don't know what's happening in the developing, unless you travel there, you don't know what's happening in China or Africa, unless you've been to those places lately. People conceptualize in their minds that the developing world is falling apart. Actually, the developing world is making such rapid progress that, I, and still has a long way to go, but I think historians will look back on the age that you and I are living in, John, and say, why wasn't it obvious to them at the time? that the big things happening in the world were happening in the developing world. So I'm going to keep uh, asking you these questions um, to allow you to articulate why it is you believe what you believe. But but when you share these stats and the massive decline in, in, in troubling poverty, why don't we hear about that? Why? Because why? in preparing for our interview today, Greg, I've been asking some really sophisticated people that I really look up to and respect the simple questions you put forward in your chapters, like... Uh, why don't we starve? And so I'm asking them, what do you think about uh, uh, global poverty? And everyone thinks that it's getting worse. Everyone thinks that the economy is getting worse in the U.S. And so whether it's macro or micro, it's, it seems to be getting worse. Why do we feel like it is the arrow is not pointing up and to the right, but down and to the right? Let, uh, let me propose a couple of answers to that in a second, John. But first, just for the sake of your listeners, let me just very, very quickly read the chapter titles of the first seven chapters of this book. The first one is, Why Don't We Starve? The second is, Why, Despite All Our Bad Habits, and I have plenty myself, do we keep living longer? Will nature collapse? Will the economy collapse? Why is violence in decline? Why does technology become safer instead of more dangerous? One of those hidden things that's happening all around us. And, and perhaps most importantly, politically, why don't the dictators win? All these areas, basic subject areas, food supply, nature, the economy, dictators versus democracy, all the experts said that everything was going to get terrible. And instead, mostly things have gotten a lot better. I think the experts are still really devoted to the pessimism theory because under under a pessimistic, especially what I call the instant doomsday view of the world, under instant doomsday, you know, you need more experts. Mm -hmm. you, better, you better funnel some more money to the Brookings Institution and some more groups of experts so they can tell us how to avoid this terrible tragedy. It's very easy to take a shot at the media and say, well, the media sells itself with bad news. That's true. The media does sell itself with bad news. If you went to the editorial board of the New York Times and said, I've got a book here that proves that the world is getting better, they would basically laugh at you and say, like W.C. Fields used to say, <laughs> go away, my boy, you bothered me. Because what they want to hear is that the world is going to hell. That's what sells their newspaper. And I suppose if I, if you or I, John, were trying to sell the New York Times, that's that's what we would try to sell too. And we see, and it's not, I don't mean just to pick on 
the New York Times are the obvious target, uh, but they are the ones that just ran the article saying that it would be good if humanity ran extinct. So <laughs> I, don't, I don't, I don't know how you get even farther the extreme right. of that. That's pretty dark, right there. Of that position, right? But but you, you you see lots of media organizations. They want to sell the idea that things are falling apart. If things are falling apart, you 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 better read the New York Times. You better watch cable news. You better keep yourself informed before the whole world vanishes out from under you. If things are basically fine and gradually getting better, maybe you don't need the Times. That's part so, of Greg, it. tell me then, because yeah. I'm I'm aware of this as well, but not exactly sure where to turn. <clears throat> so, as you trying to uh, seek truth and then share it, where do you turn for your news to actually get a pulse on where things are in the environment or within the economy or in politics or social? Well, having having just derided the New York Times, I, I will tell you that I, I read it religiously every day. I'm, I'm a big reader of technical journals. Uh, the most, and I don't always agree with what I read in them, but I think technical journals and journals that are driven by data and facts rather than by political opinions and, and shouting on talk shows mean a lot to me. I, I think any of your listeners who have the inclination to do so should follow the journal that's simply called Science which is the publication of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. It's the most important technical journal in the world. Uh, you won't agree with everything you read there. I sure don't. Uh, but it's entirely data-driven. And our, our lives should be based on factual material, not on ideological illusions. And, and, the, and, and again, the journal that's simply titled Science is an excellent place to escape from the illusions of, of the media landscape. So you, you uh, in your book, not only call out the media, of course, that they're an easy target, uh, you call out social media, of course. Uh, without unpacking that one, in short, why do you think social media, although it has some incredible positives, what, what is it about social media that can be detrimental to to how we're living, how we're experiencing the life in the world around us? I think that there's a lot of good things about social media, but but it allows anybody, not just reporters for big newspapers, to engage in the same process of, exa- of uh, exaggerating the negative and burying the positive. If you want clicks on any kind of social media post, claiming a horrifying outrage is more likely to succeed than, than say, posting data about the gradual decline of cancer. Um, so I, I think social media has sort of democratized pessimism in that regard. And I think there's a, there's a physical part of it. Social media mainly comes in on your phone and you hold it close to your face. If you're watching the television and there's something depressing on 60 Minutes and you leave and walk to the next room, the television does not get up and follow you. But your phone follows you. When you're in the next room, whatever's negative is on your phone is still right in your face. And I think the physical proximity of social media to our faces enhances its psychological impact. Well, it's, so it's social media. Now we're all the experts. That's one piece. The media, there's a second piece. And then the arts. You, you begin one of your chapters by reading from several great works of literature, I think citing some of the music that you've heard, plays and theater experiences that you've seen, all of them reminding us how lousy things are, whether it's uh, the economy or the race, relations, immigration, our country. Talk about the beginning of that chapter for a moment and uh, and where you were reading and watching uh, these plays and, and books. I start off describing, without telling the reader the names, several really great and important works of literature that have described the United States as 
having entered an inevitable cycle of decline and destruction. And then thinking, well, okay, I'm reading too many books. I'll go to the theater. The theater will cheer me up. And seeing great works of theater, both music and stage, describing the United States as mired in in, an inevitable decline and destruction. And then the punchline is, I tell you the names of all these things, they were all written at least 50 years, or in many cases, 100 years before. And the main example that I use is the great book, The Education of Henry Adams, by Henry Adams, which says the United States has entered an ultimate cycle of decline. It's being overwhelmed by global events. The, the, the educational system cannot possibly keep up. Americans will never understand science. America is an old, outdated idea. Democracy is about to collapse. And Henry Adams, who was a great man and a wonderful thinker, wrote this more than a century ago. And since then, democracy has defeated dictatorship at almost every turn. And if you think Americans don't understand science, since Henry Adams made that claim, five times more Americans have won the Nobel Prizes for the various fields of science than citizens of all other nations combined. So the, 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 uh, the assumption that America is somehow spiraling downhill, and you can go farther back. You, you, you can find, you go back to the, the preaching of Cotton Mather from the 17th century was saying that America was doomed in the 17th century. Some part of our national character wants to believe the worst about the country. Donald Trump very aptly played to that part of our national character. But Donald Trump's not the only one doing it. We have the best educated generation in the history of the country, in the history of the world living in the United States right now. And what did they hear in college? Negative, 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 everything's terrible. That's what everybody who went to college was taught. And so that's what we, that is our expectation. When we open a newspaper, a book, when we turn on the television, when we look at our phones, we expect to see news about how everything's getting worse, just like our college professors said it would. And when we see information like mine, and I'm certainly not the only person who, who writes in this vein, saying that actually, if you look at the data, life is getting better, our reaction is to, oh, that's not what I expected to hear. I don't want right. to hear that. That's not what I expected. Well, one one area I, th- I think we're all convinced that it is not getting better is around violence, with with all the stories of shootings and uh, other horrible things taking place in our communities, our neighborhoods, our states, our country, and around the world. C- clearly, that's an area that's getting worse. Do you agree with that? Everybody thinks that. Polls show that people very strongly think that, and and Donald Trump certainly repeatedly said in the 2016 campaign that violence was getting worse. That's not what the data shows. Your odds of being murdered in the United States are basically today the lowest that they've ever been. Violence has been in steady decline, included in, not in every single year, but in most years in the current generation. All forms of violence in the United States have declined. Shootings of innocent people, we've all seen the, the cell phone videos of them, are horrifying. They're just horrifying. And they make you feel awful about everything. But they are far less likely today than they were in the past, including of young black males, are less likely to be shot by the police today than they were at any point in the past. If you open this analysis to the larger world, violence is in decline almost everywhere, sadly not everywhere. Central America's had a a terrible homicide surge in the last 10 years. And that's one reason that, that illegal immigrants want to come to the United States is to get away from murder. But most of the larger world has seen steady decline of violence. 
And then the biggest question, war. We don't think war is out of control. A lot of predictors said that war would get out of the control. It's the other way around. Both the frequency and the intensity of of military conflict have been in steady decline in the last 25 years. There hasn't been a naval battle anywhere in the world since the 1940s. There have been very few air battles. Land armor battles have become very rare. Even if you even if you enlarge your analysis, as you should, to these things that experts call non-state actors, terrorist groups and ethnic groups and so on, and even if you enlarge your analysis to the civilian victims of non-state actors, which were, you know, happens is totally horrible. Uh, there's still less military conflict in the world today on a steady basis than there's been at any time in our generation. And if you adjust to current dollars, global military spending per capita has also declined steadily almost every year during the time that you and I have been alive. Well, I want to give you an opportunity to not just share kind of the good trend lines, but also speak to the fact that things aren't perfect. Like you're not Pollyanna dancing around um, saying it's all ponytails and puppy dogs and rainbows. Like there are hard times for lots and lots of people, but you're an optimist. So tell me the the difference between an optimist and a pessimist and then how that affects then how you view the data as it is right now. Well, an optimist thinks that problems can be fixed. The pessimist thinks that we're doomed. That's the main difference. And I'm totally aware of all of the problems in our world. There's a, there's a huge number of serious problems, and I, I feel pretty confident that there's, there's more problems coming. So I devote a full chapter, and it's better than it looks, to the problem of climate change. Climate change is real. It's scientifically confirmed. I think we can control it. I don't think it's a doomsday problem, but we've got to take action. And I, as I say, devote a chapter to describing in detail the specific reasonable actions we could take to control climate change. I think inequality is a huge problem. It's gotten worse in some parts of the world, not all, but it's certainly gotten worse in some parts of the world. And inequality it causes classes of society that have no stake in the future success of society. That's got to change. So I devote a chapter to analyzing that. And there, there are many other problems beyond that. And we have this generalized problem that I call collapse anxiety, that we all, I think it's not all, but most of us at some point, fear that the Western way of life cannot be sustained. And while I don't think that Western life is going to collapse, I, I admit I can't prove it. So I think ultimately we need some solution to that as well. I uh, asked 10 colleagues of mine if they felt inequality and racism was getting better or worse. And th- these are sophisticated people. And of the 10 I asked, eight said it's getting worse. H- how would you respond to their belief? Well, I, I, if you judge racism by formal, formal or informal discrimination, I think both of those are in pretty dramatic decline. And then there's a simple answer to that if you're African American, if you're Hispanic, if you're if you're gay, would you rather live today or in any year in the past? And the answer, 100 percent people are going to say I'd rather live today. So that's that's a, that's an example of decline inequality statistically. Yeah, it is a, it is a pretty serious economic problem in the United States and in many, although not all, countries. Uh, a lot of analysts exaggerate it. By they only look at pre-tax income as the measure of inequality. You don't live your life on pre-tax income. You live your life on the formula of 
income minus taxes plus benefits. If you do that formula, inequality is not so bad, but it's still basically there. And if you look at the history of economic writing, Milton Friedman, the crown prince of capitalist economics, was warning 50 years ago that the ultimate threat to the American system would be inequality. Because in, in some ways, because the more open and more fair the system becomes, the more you worry about the people who just can't compete on an educational basis losing out. And I, we see this happening around us, and there's got to be a fundamental solution. And uh, and I think inequality is it is inequality is a, is a much more troubling problem than climate change. Climate change is an engineering problem, and Americans are really good at engineering problems. Inequality is another matter. Well, let's talk about the engineering problem of climate change then, since you, since you brought it up, and uh, it is something that I think we all face and will face, and generations will face going forward. You write very optimistically about challenges we faced in the past, how we overcame them, and how that might free us to overcome this this new one. Talk about that. In the last 25 years, smog has declined very dramatically in the United States. And, and Greg, just for the listeners who may, you know, smog and acid rain, if, if you're under the age of 40, you may not have a clue what you're even referencing. When you're talking about riding on your dad's old Buick outside the the, the home in Buffalo, most of us don't have a clue what you're even talking about because it's it's so far in the past that it's not even relevant. So maybe a little context on what it used to be like, what it is, and what that might mean for us going forward. Sure, John. As recently as the 1970s, Los Angeles, the old smog capital of the country, would have average 125 stage one ozone alerts per year. During a stage one ozone alert, it's not safe for old people or young people to go outside in Los Angeles. It's now been six consecutive years since Los Angeles had even one stage one ozone alert. Uh, smog in Los Angeles, Houston, Denver, uh, other cities that were plagued by it. It isn't completely eliminated, but it's mainly gone. Same with acid rain. If you read the commentary from the 1980s, Acid rain was rising. It blows from west to east. It falls on the Appalachian Forest. Many commentators were predicting a, a new silent spring where the Appalachian Forest would all die. Now, the, the, today, the Appalachian Forest is healthier than it was when Europeans first laid eyes on this continent. Smog and acid rain have been not eliminated, but they've been reduced so much. And without any change at all to our lifestyle, some commentators would would argue without enough change to our lifestyle, but there's been no imposition on our lifestyle. It turned out to be much cheaper than anybody expected to solve both of these problems. And what are they? They're air pollution problems. What are greenhouse gases? They're an air pollution problem. We've got this wonderful example of smog and acid rain being brought to heel relatively quickly, relatively cheaply. If we take the things that we learned controlling smog and acid rain and apply them to greenhouse gases, I think climate change will come under control as well and, and much more cheaply than people expect. What about, Greg, longevity? It, it, it seems everywhere you look that you have friends and family members, neighbors, uh, you read about people who are dying younger and younger, you know, just you, you read about it in almost every headline, a, a tragic death here and there. Is that the, the trend line? Are we starting to see a decline in that? In the last two years, the answer is yes. If you look at the main data from about 1840 to two years ago, longevity had increased on an almost spooky three months per year basis for almost two centuries. And that, that is, with each passing year, a baby born 
would live three months longer than the baby that was born the previous year. And if you if you work this out, a baby born on Friday lives longer than a baby born on Monday of the of the same week. That had been the case for almost two centuries, and it it, it was a gradually sloped uh, data curve that looked like a, an escalator in a mall going up every year. Not affected much by the. the the huge epidemic in 1919 didn't affect longevity increase much. Wars didn't affect longevity increase much. Big breakthroughs like the polio vaccine didn't affect it much. People just live longer and longer. The last two years, longevity has gone down in the United States, and it looks like the opioid crisis is so severe that overdose deaths from legally obtained painkillers have kicked the chair out from under longevity increase. Right. I, I, I think that if we get the if we get the painkiller problem under control, then longevity increase will will rapidly resume its previous positive arc. But for for all but the last two years, John, of yours and my lifetime, uh, people have been living longer and living longer almost everywhere. You look at China now. China a hundred years ago, typical lifespan at birth was only about forty one, forty two years. Now people being born in China are going to live as long as people being born in Scotland. The the in, the increase in longevity is almost global. You are a Buffalo man, and uh, I've had the great pleasure of speaking not only around Buffalo but uh, you know upstate New York, all over the place. And frequently, my friends who I get to meet up there tell me that it's not like it used to be. And you've already kind of hinted at this, but for those who are struggling because the jobs aren't what they used to be because the cities aren't what they used to be, whether that is in upstate New York or Michigan or Wisconsin or out west, anywhere else, both around the United States and around the world, make it real for the individual who feels as if they are struggling. Well, the, the overall number, 3.7% unemployment, oh man, that's such a, that's such a fantastic figure. In, in a kind of, in, when Jimmy Carter was president, if, if you told him this, President Carter, I've got a plan that will reduce unemployment to 3.7%. You would have fallen down on the ground and kissed your feet. Uh, so the, the basic number is real good, but that doesn't mean that everywhere is in good shape. There's a lot of cities in the Ohio Valley and the central part of Pennsylvania where unemployment is high. And this may not be what the person living in one of those cities would want to hear, but the solution to this is to move somewhere else. The, the long-standing belief that Americans are we're a society of movers and we move too much, that's not statistically true. Uh, over the last 50 years, the rate at which Americans move to new communities has declined very dramatically. In the last 15 years, Americans have moved very little, except for Americans at the very top of the income scale. You look at the top decile or the top 10%, the top 10% of earners in the United States move a lot. But, but most other Americans do not move. And, and really, if you if you live in the Ohio Valley or in the parts of of northern Wisconsin where jobs are scarce, the solution is move someplace where mm. jobs are plentiful, of which there are many. That's that's what your ancestors did. Uh, and I'm not saying it's a perfect solution. I'm not saying it's fun. But you, you move someplace where you can get a job. Five years later, you're going to be a lot happier than you are today. Well, it's, it's ironic you bring that up for the folks who are, are are struggling over there, because also on the coast. One of the questions that was asked of you in a college setting, I believe, was I have a brother who lives in Southern California. He makes about minimum wage. He travels an hour and a half both ways to work. He can barely afford his apartment. He lives with three other guys. And so after this long-winded question, your response was, I, 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 would, I would tell your brother to move. Yeah, that's, that's 
housing prices in parts of California, especially Northern California, but Southern California too, they're just so out of control. Uh, I don't know how anybody other than the rich can deal with it. And the solution is move. There's lots of places that move to Chattanooga, Tennessee. It's really beautiful there. Housing prices are, are reasonable. There's lots of young people. It's a great place to live. I'm just pulling that one out of my head, but <laughs> you don't have to live in Los Angeles to be happy. Um, as you look forward... It kind of sum up this interview. As you look forward, are you uh, are you remaining optimistic about about your children's future and your children's children's future and where we are as a society? Does it continue to uh, arrow up to the right? Oh yes, yes. I'm very optimistic. I have three kids. They're all they're all in their twenties. I am very optimistic about their future. I think by the time they have children, climate change will be a solved problem. I would emphasize again to your listeners that climate change is real, it's serious, but it can also be fixed. And I think it's going to be fixed in my children's lifetime. I don't worry about it very much for them. I think it's possible to fix inequality. It's a larger challenge, and it will take longer to work with. And I think down the road, to as my children reach my age and as their children come into a role, I think AI and robotics and all the whole package of issues related to that, they're going to become a real serious challenge to human society. I don't think that glowing robots are going to be running through the streets attacking people. But they are <laughs> machines are going to replace workers more and more, and they're, they're going to replace knowledge workers, white-collar people as well. And that's going to pose a very fundamental challenge to the way that our society is ordered. You uh, are coming across as not only a father and an upstate New Yorker and a very bright guy around economics and uh, society, but I want our listeners to recognize uh, that the man is broad in his knowledge and in his passions, including the love of sports and specifically football. You've been a, a, not only a fan of football your whole life, but you've been writing about it, I think, every Tuesday for four decades. Uh, not quite that long. Uh, this this year was the seventeenth year of Tuesday morning quarterback. I have this where my hobby is to is to go to football games, which I do way too often, and and write about them. And I write I've written a quirky column called Tuesday Morning Quarterback that's run in a in a variety of places. And, I, and I'll tell you that the, the reason I started doing it, my wife's name is Nan. That that years ago on Sundays in the fall, I would want to sit down and watch football games and. Nan would want to take the kids to cultural events or to state parks. I mean, can you imagine these misplaced priorities? So <laughs> one day I walked in and one day I walked in and said, "Nan, I'm going to do a column about football. I now have a professional obligation to watch this game." And she was speechless for the only time in our entire relationship, and she's still basically speechless about it. What is it about football you love? Uh, I call it the king of sports. Football is, I don't want to belabor the metaphor, but it's a metaphor for American society. We're the only, yeah, Canadians play a version of football, but we're the only major society or a national, national sport is football. And football is just like the United States. It's the biggest sport. It's the most expensive. It's the loudest. It's the craziest. It's the most extreme on everything. And what's the United States? We're big, loud, expensive, extreme, crazy. And I also I also like the living chessboard aspect of football. It's 22 guys all doing different things on a very wide variety of plays. And I think there's there's more variation in a football game than there is in the games of any other kind of team sport. 
Well, you, you I, know like, you're a, I know you're a baseball guy, right? Well, I, I didn't want to critique you for saying football's the national pastime because I, I think we could get in a fist fight over that one. But you're my friend, so I'm not going to fight you right now. You you, uh, you don't only love football and loud things, though. You also love uh, the opportunity to learn more about who you are and from where you come. And you write about spirituality, which is an unusual thing for an economic guide, a, a social guy, now a football guy to write about. Talk about besides still water. Oh, I, I was very pleased, John, when you said that you'd read and liked that book. That's from uh, 20 years ago, yeah. 1998, that book came out. It's my book, Speculating on uh, My Understanding of... It's mainly about Christian theology. And I'm. If when people ask me what I am, I always say, well, I'm an agnostic Christian. And people say, well, isn't that a contradiction in terms? And, and it's not. And the quick version is just go to Wikipedia and look up Christian agnosticism. That's what I am. And, and that book was an attempt to show that Christian agnosticism could be justified, not just on the basis of, this is what I choose to believe, which is ultimately what we all do with religion, but also could be justified with a, with a, with a constructive understanding of Scripture. And that's what that book is about. And I, I actually like that book, and I commend it to your, to your listeners. Greg, give our listeners, and uh, give me, I'm a business owner, a speaker, writer, have a podcast, and I'm married. I'm a son. I'm a father of four and a friend of, of more than four. What, what can I and what can we do to really take this message that you put forward in this book and live it out boldly every day in our lives? First of all, I would say to be optimistic is a choice that we make. Uh, to be pessimistic is a choice that we make. The events of the world don't force you to be negative or positive. We make a choice about these things. So first, make the choice to be optimistic. Just in the same way that, that I'm sure you feel this way, John, I, I feel this way too, that it's a constructive way to live your life, to feel gratitude for the people around you. And gratitude doesn't mean that you're a Pollyanna. Of course you know that there's all kinds of problems in the world. But you should feel grateful for the things that have gone well for you and for the people around you. It's a healthy way to live your life. And that's also a choice. It's really easy to feel bitter. And I, I think one reason that so many people in our lives, and you you and I both know many, descend into bitterness and unhappiness is that that's the path of least resistance. You know better than other people how you have to work to feel grateful for your life. But in the end, it's very rewarding. So I, I would tell you, your friends, your, your your listeners, to feel optimistic about life, to feel grateful. These are choices that we make and things that we have to work at if you reach that point, being optimistic and grateful, you'll be a happier person. It will not cause you to think that everything is fine, because everything is definitely not fine. But it will cause you to think that you can play some role in the solutions to the problems we still have. And that is so well said. So uh, we are going to pivot from your uh, great answer into what we call the Live Inspired 7. These are seven questions, Greg Easterbrook, that connect all of our, our guests together. So here we go. Number one. Greg Easterbrook, the author of It's Better Than It, it Looks. What is the best book you've ever read? The best book ever. Uh, my favorite author is Willa Cather, and I think the genuine great American novel is the book My Antonia, which she published more than a century ago, and I think it's every bit as relevant today as it was then. So, uh, you know, I'm asking this for a friend because, of course, I've read My Antonia, but for those who have not, tell us briefly what it is. Like, what, what is it about that book that you have uh that it's just it's a novel. 
It's a novel. It it's begins in Nebraska in the middle of the 19th century. It was published in geez, during World War I, so a little more than a century ago. And it, it's relevant to the work that I do because the hero, the, the, the protagonist is a better word, the protagonist of the novel is driven by nostalgia for the past and a belief that the past was better and the future is doomed. Wow. And gradually, through the course of the novel, he learns to let go of all these beliefs. All right, that sounds fascinating. So uh, question number two is, what one positive characteristic, what one trait did you possess as a child, Greg, that you wish you exhibited as brightly and as brilliantly today? Uh, besides being slender? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's watching well, too much football, time. man. If you watch more baseball, yeah. you'd be slender and more astute. I suppose so. I, I think as a child, I was a lot more outgoing than I am today. I'm uh, I'm not a recluse, but I, I was more outgoing when I was young. If your home caught fire and uh, all living things, and of course individuals, are out, you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item. What would you grab? The flash drive with my next book on it. Awesome. Uh, give us a, a sneak preview of what might be on that flash drive. Uh, let's just, I can't be too specific, plus I'm superstitious about unpublished books, but let's just say it's something that grows out of the book besides still waters. Perfect. If you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone, living or dead, who would you want to be having that nice long visit with? This is going to sound very George W. Bush-like, but I'd want to talk to Jesus. I think he's the greatest moral philosopher of our of the sapiens, whatever it is that we are. He's the, he was our greatest moral philosopher. What's the first question you asked Jesus? Is there hope? <laughs> What's his answer? I don't know. <laughs> That's why I want to ask him. <laughs> uh, perfect. I, I believe I know the answer. What's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice I ever received, and this will sound a little bit corny because I view, I've only written, published three novels. I view myself fundamentally as an artist, not a journalist. But the best advice I ever received from another artist was listen to your muse. Uh, your listeners know what the concept of a muse is. The muse often tells you things that you wish you didn't hear. You have to follow your muse wherever she leads you. And I've been following my muse, and I think that was actually good advice. Mm. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? My 20-year-old self. I would say if you want to make a lot of money as a writer, choose one genre and stick to it, because <laughs> I definitely did not follow that advice. And we're glad you did not. Uh, final Thank question, you. Greg. Uh, it has been said that all great artists, and I'm on the, the, the podcast right now with one, can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? One sentence. He was debonair. <laughs> <laughs> Greg Easterbrook, you were indeed debonair. You listened to your muse, and you've reminded uh, a great many people that uh, the great fact is this, and it's important that we remember it, that the trend of civilization is forever upward. Uh, there is reason for hope, and the best is yet to come. So thank you for uh, the work you do and the lives that you touch. Thank you so much, John. My friends, that is Greg Easterbrook. He is the author of It's Better Than It Looks. It is worth checking out, by the way. I am John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired. <laughs>